welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. If you were going to be playing in nightclubs and casinos back in those days, you were working for the mob. It wasn't exactly a kept secret. Frank knew all of them. Carlo Gambino, Santo Traficano, Benny Siegel, Johnny Rosselli, Johnny Formosa, Paul Castellano, and many more. But his all-time best bud was Sam Giancana, the ferret-faced Chicago Don whose life was to impact Frank's and Maryland's and JFK's and the Rat Pack members continuously between 1955 and 1964. But Frank's real mob hero and pal. Frank was his own little tough guy who bullied busboys, punched reporters and photographers, and generally ordered people around. But when it came to being a real tough guy, Sam Giancana was a torturer and murderer with 70 arrests on his record, a murder indictment at age 18. The chief witness to that crime having turned up dead the day after charges were filed. Giancana was a grade school dropout who rose to the top purely on guts and greed, having been born in the patch, Chicago's Italian-American ghetto, and rising to the top of a gang then called the 42s, who stole, raped, beat, and extorted, and then killed any witnesses who wanted to testify. He'd been the wheelman for machine gun Jack McGurn, one of Al Capone's boys, and he got to know and run with the mob bosses who followed Capone, Charlie Fish, Frank Nitty, and Paul Rica, to name a few. He built this fun little Chicago enterprise and grew it into a full-fledged crime syndicate that was fully diversified, reaching as far as shrimp fishing in the Caribbean, and of course, gambling throughout the Midwest, which earned him the added benefit of being able to skim many more millions off the top of all the Vegas casinos he had partnered in. Now, to be honest, Frank probably never went looking for friends like Sam Giancana, but when they came around, he wasn't going to ask them to leave. And there was a mutual benefit implicit in any friendship he struck up with a mob boss, and Giancana was no exception. Sam would protect Frank, and that became known, and Frank would lead Giancana to the Kennedys. The holy grail to organize crime is having friends in high government places. And if you could get any dirt on those friends, you might be able to use it to get a little better treatment in certain situations. And when John Fitzgerald Kennedy became president and appointed his younger brother Bobby to the vaulted cabinet position of attorney general, all of organized crime stood up and took notice. Bobby, knowing of his brother's association with Sinatra and how those ties were bringing JFK dangerously close to mob people, wanted to be his brother's keeper, and from the day he was appointed, he dug into the mob like a pit bull on a pork chop. You gotta hand it to Bobby for guts. So there's Peter Lawford, one day courting the underworld by dining with Chicago mob attorney Sidney Korshak in L.A. The next day, cowering in a corner of a Copacabana dressing room when a couple of tough guys walk in on him and Jimmy Durante and start asking Peter why Bobby is being so hard on his friends. Then Joey gets asked to entertain at the wedding of one of Giancana's daughters. Frank and Sam Giancana drop by Frank's home in Hoboken to give a shout to the folks between golf trips and parties in California, Nevada, and Hawaii. And of course, Easter at Frank's place in Palm Springs. Sam even got to come on the set of Some Came Running and Come Blow Your Horn. And that was where Sam Giancana 
The killer, Weasel, met Phyllis McGuire of the McGuire Sisters, a close number two to the Andrews Sisters of recording fame. Peter Lawford once said of Giancana, much later and not too publicly, He was a really awful guy with a gargoyle face and a weasel nose. I couldn't stand him, but Frank idolized him. And Frank really did go overboard for his new bromance. He gave Giancana a ring, and even went so far as to ask Giancana if he was wearing it all the time. Which earned a comment in the bar of the Fontainebleau in 1961 from bartender Joseph Simone, who asked if they were having a relationship. Giancana laughed like a crazy man. Sinatra turned away, embarrassed. But from Frank's point of view, how could you not love a guy like Giancana? The Fontainebleau was one of the hot spots for entertainers and the mob. Dean and Jerry had filmed one of their Hal Wallace films, The Bellboy, there in 1960. After the filming of Ocean's Eleven, the cast and crew lived it up there for weeks. One of Giancana's favorite stunts involved tossing cherry bombs under people's chairs. Whenever Giancana was in a room, be it a bar room or a conference room, people knew it. They also knew that he and his bodyguards carried weapons, so there's always a little tension there. So one day, Sam reached into his pocket, pulled out a cherry bomb, lit it with his cigar, and rolled it under Peter Lawford's chair. Now, a cherry bomb makes a pretty good explosion and Lawford came flying out of his chair. Amidst the turmoil and smoke, the only guy laughing was the still-seated Giancana, and the legend was born. Many more cherry bombs would follow, and Frank liked the gag so much that he kept his pockets loaded with them, using them to send the press reeling when they got a little tiresome. Then there was Marilyn, sweet, soft, sexy, and desirable. On May 19th, 1962, at a fundraiser and early birthday celebration for President John F. Kennedy, Marilyn Monroe shimmied onto the Madison Square Garden stage, shrugged off her glamorous fur coat to reveal a skin-tight, rhinestone-encrusted gown, and stepped up to the microphone singing, Happy Birthday, Mr. President, where she crooned in an almost childlike voice, launching into the now-famous rendition of Happy Birthday that made men's hair and other things stand up, even with a liberal dose of brill cream. When JFK took the stage to thank her, he said, I can now retire from politics after having happy birthday sung to me in such a sweet, wholesome way. The girl next door. You bet. Talk about events that make wives mad. That had to be one. And all thanks to their meeting at a dinner party at Peter Lawford's place in Santa Monica, where Peter Lawford's wife, who was JFK's sister, Patricia Kennedy Lawford, was, and she just happened to be a close friend of Marilyn's. Marilyn and Peter and Pat all became close friends. And it was Peter that had been the last person known to have been talking to her on her home phone that fateful night on August 5, 1962, when she was found dead of a barbiturate overdose in her L.A. home. She was 36 years old. The controversy still swirls around her death, with many believing it was not an accidental overdose. JFK's death would follow on November 22, 1963, when he was shot and killed in Dallas, Texas, opening up an even bigger controversy that still rages today as to who the killer or killers were. But in the summer of 1960, JFK and family were concerned with one thing, winning the presidential election against Nixon. And JFK's friendship 
having been already established with Frank and the Rat Pack, was both a great source of campaign financing and a potential image problem that had to be kept at arm's length. Especially worrisome was Sammy, whose impending marriage to Swedish bombshell May Britt, at which Frank was to be best man, was drawing slings and arrows from every corner, especially the American Southland, which boasted the most vocal Democrat racist governors and Senate leaders, as witnessed by the fact that it was the Republicans who finally had to push the Civil Rights Bill across the finish line in 1964, and not the Democrats. But the Kennedys needed all this to die down until after the election, so they asked Frank to ask Sammy to delay the wedding, scheduled for that summer, until after the election. Sammy didn't think twice. He had a heart-to-heart with May, and they postponed their wedding until the first Sunday after the election in November. And, of course, Kennedy won. The image still had to be protected, but Jack and Frank still made the rounds whenever possible, providing JFK with some time to let off a little steam with his pals. So when JFK asked Frank if he would mind a little visit to Frank's home in Palm Springs, Frank was all about it, to the point where he started some major renovations, including adding a helicopter landing area on the estate, a banquet room that could seat 40, two cottages for Secret Service agents, and a full communications center. Kennedy was set to visit Palm Springs March 24th of that year, 1962, and on March 22nd, just as workers were putting the last polishing touches on a couple million dollars worth of renovations, Peter called Frank and told him that the president wouldn't be coming. Peter had been asked personally by both Jack and Bobby to do the deed. Then they asked him to find another place in Palm Springs. He did, settling on Bing Crosby's place. Peter's conversation with Frank didn't go too well. Frank was in a state of shock. Peter gave him the excuse that the Secret Service had nixed Frank's place because it was too open. Crosby's place, backed up against the mountains, was more secure. Peter, between countless I'm sorry's, got in all the excuses he could and then hung up. Frank immediately called Bobby in Washington, but was rebuffed. He left a message calling Bobby every name in the book. Then he called Peter back and did the same, adding some new terms. After hanging up, Frank took a sledgehammer to all that work he had just paid for. He went nuts. All the broads he had supplied? All the campaign money? All the union money? The mob connections? And this was how he was treated? When JFK arrived in Palm Springs a couple days later, he called Frank and did a better-than-good job of lying about the reasons why he couldn't stay at Frank's estate, and told Frank that Peter had nothing to do with any of that. Peter was just the messenger. But Frank had suffered a huge loss of face. Eddie Fisher, who owed him one for busting up his nightclub act, commented that Frank should put a plaque on the house reading, Kennedy almost slept here. Frank never got over it, and there really wasn't anyone he could take out all his wrath upon, other than Peter. So Peter got the brunt. Frank wrote him off, and Peter had really idolized Frank. So after it all, Peter sulked, he drank, he saw every life's problem from that time on as being somehow caused by Frank, and the Rat Pack went from five to four. 62 might have been a bad year for Peter, but it was a monster year for Frank and the Rat Pack, with the opening of the Cal Neva Lodge, and later that year, the Villa Venice in Chicago. 
The Calneva Lodge was located on the north shore of Lake Tahoe, all wood, stone, and granite, and looking out at one of the most beautiful lake and mountain scenes in God's creation. The rooms and restaurant were on the California side of the line, which went right through the middle of the complex, and the casino was on the legal Nevada side. When word got out to Frank back in 1960 that the Calneva was falling on hard times, he went to see owner Bert Wingy Grober. And soon, Frank, Dean, Hank Santacola, and Skinny D'Amato walked away with a contract, each carrying a percentage of ownership with them, having bought out Grober's interest for a mere $250,000. But the place needed upgrades, so the new owners asked the Teamsters Central States Pension Fund, the same Jimmy Hoffa fund that had done so well investing in Las Vegas, and figured it was a slam dunk, as Skinny D'Amato was really just a front man for Sam Giancana, but Hoffa turned them down. The Bank of Nevada said hell yes, however, and renovations began. Sinatra performed at the hotel regularly that summer, and the guests included Marilyn Monroe and her then-husband Arthur Miller, then old Joe Kennedy, who was there just before the 1960 Democrat convention, sporting with women, getting campaign donations from gangsters, and brokering the deal through which Frank would eventually take ownership. The deal went through in the summer of 62. Frank invited a boatload of stars, and they all showed up ready to have fun and listen to Frank, who was the main attraction. You would think he could be happy for a few nights of this, but on the second night of the grand opening, he was involved in a fist fight with a sheriff's deputy who had recently married a waitress with whom Frank had a history, and the deputy hit Frank so hard that he couldn't finish his scheduled performances. So Frank went to Reno and complained to the sheriff, who of course suspended his deputy, who ended up getting killed in a mysterious car accident just two weeks later. Not long after that, a prostitution ring was busted operating out of Calneva, and then somebody got shot on the front steps. Then Peter Lawford showed up with Marilyn Monroe in tow, but to help her get away from the stresses in her life that had been pulling her down. A deal cooked up by Peter and his wife, Pat. But Marilyn somehow spent the weekend popping pills and, according to some, getting forced into sex acts. All this while Joe DiMaggio was prowling the perimeter of the place, looking for her, so he could rescue her from all this hell. And it is known that Sam Giancana was also around that weekend, with some reports going so far as to say that he was keeping her in her room. And all this while, Peter and Pat were sleeping just down the hall? Apparently. Fortunately for Marilyn, who had taken a lethal dose of pills along with her drinks, she had kept her bedside telephone connected to the hotel switchboard because she was afraid to be left alone, which at some point, she obviously was, the operator had heard trouble breathing coming from her chalet, and the operator alerted Pat and Peter, who rushed down the hall to her room and found her in pretty bad shape. They gave her coffee, walked her around, got her dressed, and snuck her out of town. But two weeks later, Marilyn would be found dead of an overdose at her home in L.A. In the weeks and months to come, Sam G. and Connor's presence, Frank's attitude toward the Nevada Gaming Commission, and subsequent investigations would finally bring an end to Calneva. Sam G. and Connor was really pissed that he had lost his connection to JFK, and for a while considered who he could hit, including Frank. But with G. and Connor, Cunning took the place of murderous retribution when his creative mind hit upon a solution that would use Frank to turn a profit for him. And that involved setting up a mini Las Vegas in Cook County north of Chicago and calling it Villa Venice. 
Sam would play over the Rat Pack's guilt over the Kennedy affair and start calling in favors from Eddie Fisher, Frank, Dean, and Sammy, starting with Eddie. The place was ornate and could seat 800 people, with thick burgundy carpet, expensive art, fine linen, and even fountains in a fireplace. While the entertainment was happening here, out back, sort of hidden, was a wired Quonset Hut casino where the serious entertainment was taking place, high-stakes gambling. When the whole thing opened in November 1962, people flocked to the Villa Venice and packed the Quonset Hut. Both buildings were packed to the rafters with a who's who of mob personalities as Frank, Dean, and Sammy hit town, doing 16 shows in seven days. They made an album out there, and the CD still exists, The Rat Pack at Villa Venice. And you'll get all the jokes, the singing, and the between-the-song stuff. It'll give you a really good feeling of what they were about in the prime of their careers when they were being called the Rat Pack. A few weeks later, the FBI was listening in on Sam Giancana as he tallied up the take from the first month. Between the nightclub and the Quonset hut, he had taken in over $3 million tax-free. One would think that information like that would have Sammy in handcuffs, but as it turned out, Giancana had some very powerful friends in Cuba, and the CIA had a need for his talents and contacts. So Giancana, rather than go to prison, offered to help the CIA on their mission to overthrow Castro. Sam's day would come in the same way it did for most of the mob, at his Chicago home in 1974, late at night. The FBI mysteriously pulled their surveillance of Giancana's home that night. And what do you know, the next morning, Giancana was found shot seven times in the face, one in the back of the head, in the bathtub of his home. And nobody saw nothing. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. By 1965 and his 50th birthday, Frank Sinatra was recording with the Nelson Riddle Orchestra on a motion picture scoring soundstage with Sinatra displaying an impressive range of vocals on songs. For the past few years, he had sung and performed with Elvis, Judy Garland, Count Basie, Quincy Jones, and dozens of other luminaries. And the same writers who had written that he had reached his peak ten years ago were saying it all over again, even though he wasn't there yet. In June of 1965, coinciding with his birthday, Frank, Sammy, and Dean played live in St. Louis to benefit the Dismas House, a prisoner rehab training center with nationwide programs established to help primarily African-American convicts who truly wanted a shot at turning things around. This is one of the few appearances which has remained in the public domain, and we'll share a few cuts with you right now. Welcome, everyone, to the Frank Sinatra Spectacular. And to immediately get into our show, I want to bring out a very wonderful, wonderful personality of show business. The host of tonight's show, you all know him, Johnny Carson.
Gee, and I don't have one commercial. <laughs> Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. As uh, you know, there are several things going on tonight with this show for Halfway House, Dismas House. Not only are they doing this show here, but they are televising this show and sending it to several cities around the country for closed circuit in Chicago and New York, to mention two of them. And on top of that, along with the show, CBS is also filming a special of the career of Frank Sinatra. And they've been following Frank around all day. <laughs> and that will go on in the fall under the title Crusader Rabbit. I should explain right from the outset that I was a last-minute substitution tonight, and I hope you're not too disappointed. Mr. Joy Bishop was supposed to be... Uh, Joy injured his back and was not able to make it, and Frank called me, and I was delighted to come out here for this cause, because I believe in it. Actually, what happened, Joy slipped a disc backing out in Frank's presence. <laughs> you didn't know that's the way you leave a room when Frank... Oh, yes. My liege, may I leave? And you back out of the room. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Actually, Georgie Jessel was supposed to be on this show tonight, but he's exhausted from reading his Father's Day cards today. <laughs> I love to, to, to work for a live audience. I'm so used to television. I'm going to try to forget that the cameras are even here tonight. And uh, we stopped the hotel and we got out of the limousines today. And as you know, the Teamsters have a great deal to do with this. And the welcome wasn't too good today. They yanked the driver off my limousine as I was coming in. <laughs> but I like to do these things because it gets me away from television. And as we were getting out today, some lady said, I think it's Johnny Carson. And she says, do you mind if I lie down to see? <laughs> so if you would feel more comfortable, or you don't recognize me in an upright position, I will understand tonight. As a matter of fact, I hope this doesn't sound like bragging or ego, but I read last year that the birth rate in this country has dropped appreciably in the United States, and I like to feel that my show is partly responsible <laughs> for this decline. Uh, it, you know, it may turn out that I could be more reliable than any of it, you know. <laughs> if I could just get approved by the Catholic Church, I'm in. never appeared on stage with a drink in my hand before. And the only reason I do so now is to set the stage.
thank you very much. Uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to be. I didn't. Did he introduce me? I just walked on. Somebody, somebody pushed me out here. I don't know what. It's all right, though. Oh, all right. But uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Frank uh, asked me to come over. Uh, he told me to come here. <laughs> and uh, just this morning we we flew in. We didn't even take the airplane. We just flew right. <laughs> We do that on weekends, and uh, <laughs> you missed the whole show. <laughs> but uh, right now, I've had a very special request, but I'm going to sing anyhow. And, uh, but this, oh, look at this. This ain't got no printing on it at all. <laughs> we're out. Uh, want to go anyplace? <laughs> no, we're going to sing a few, excuse me. We're going to sing a few. Oh, boy. But here's a little song. Uh, oh, I don't know. I'll, I'll look at the introduction. You play whatever you want. This is from that wonderful picture, Lay Back and Read. <laughs> Send me the pillow that you dream of. Still care for you Send me the pillow That you dream on So darling I can dream On it too Each night While I'm sleeping so lonely in dreams I'll share your love that once was mine send me the pillow that you dream on so darling I can dream
trailer for sailor rent. Rooms are left 50 cent. No phones, no pools, no pets. Ain't got no cigarettes of a two hours of pushing broom by the eight or twelve of it room, mama. Man, it means by no means king of the road. Third box car, midnight train. Destination, bang of main. Please be kind 
Just tell me your love sincere. It sure is, baby. Please be kind. Make sure you're not too strange. Yes. And please be kind. Cause if you leave me, babe, I know my heart's gonna lose its mind. You already lost it. You lost it. think he's going to do, Sam. Thank you very much. I don't know, but he sure sing good for a white fella, don't he? <laughs> you make me feel so young. You make me feel like spring has sprung. Every time I see you grin, I'm such a happy individual the moment that you speak. I want to go play hide and seek I want to go and bounce the moon Just like a toy balloon You and I We are just like a couple of tots Running around the meadow Picking up all those forget-to-me-nots you make me feel so young You make me feel there are songs to be sung Bells to be rung and a wonderful fling To be blown And even when I'm old and gray I'm gonna feel the way I do today Because you make me feel so young make me young You make me feel like spring sprung Yes Every time I see you grin What happened? I'm such a happy individual The moment that you speak What do I say? I want to go play hide and seek I want to go and bounce the moon yeah. Just like a big balloon Cause you and I, we are just like a couple of tots, and we're running around the meadow, snatching up all those forget-to-me-nots. You make me young, you make me feel there are songs to be sung, bells to be rung, and a wonderful fling to be blown.
Thank you, but we had all the fun. <laughs> Gee, what a wonderful night this has been. And as Frank has already said, what a, how much fun it is to perform in front of people. Just after this concert, in November of 1965, the album The September of My Years was released, featuring the song It Was a Very Good Year, which ended up winning a Grammy for Best Vocal Performance, Male. In 1966, Sinatra released That's Life, with both the single of That's Life and album becoming top ten hits in the U.S. on Billboard's pop charts. How does that song go? I've been a poet, a pirate, a pauper, a prince, and I know one thing. Or is it a pirate, a poet, a pauper, and a prince? You probably know. But that follows with, and I know one thing. 
Each time I find myself flat on my face, I just pick myself up and get back in the race. Great stuff, great songwriting, and delivered in a way that'll take people a long time to forget it by Frank Sinatra. He was good. Also from that album, Strangers in the Night went on to top the Billboard and UK pop singles charts, winning the award for the record of the year at the Grammys. Sinatra's first live album, Sinatra at the Sands, was recorded during January and February 1966 at the Sands Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. Sinatra was backed by the Count Basie Orchestra with Quincy Jones conducting. Sinatra pulled out from the Sands the following year when he was driven out by its new owner, Howard Hughes, after a fight. And how did that start, you ask? By late 1966, things were changing in Vegas. When Frank opened at the Sands that November, he was already hearing ominous rumors that Howard Hughes was in town making deals and that nothing would ever be the same again. And within months, those rumors were founded when Hughes started buying casinos. The Desert Inn, then the Frontier, then the Sands. Hughes was becoming King Kong of Vegas, and Sinatra was looking more like Bobo the Chimp. It rankled. And it was Hughes that had refused to buy out Frank's stake in the floundering Calneva Casino. And Hughes had once gone after Ava Gardner. Now he was messing with Frank's town and it didn't sit well at all. It was nearing time for a magnitude 7 Frank meltdown. In September of 1967, he was scheduled to play four weeks at the Sands, calling off his Labor Day shows at the last moment just to tweak Hughes's people, saying he had a sore throat. He was also talking to the people at Jay Sarno's brand new Caesars Palace and making ready to part with the Sands. When he came back after Labor Day with his new wife, Mia Farrow, he was not in a good mood, snarling, drinking heavily, and gambling hard. As he had been allowed to do for all the times he'd been playing at the Sands, he was pocketing the chips that he won and drawing debt markers when he lost. But the huge people in the crowd were watching this time. They were aware that he had been talking to Caesars and didn't want him leaving with a million dollars of chips in his pockets and two million dollars worth of markers behind him. On Thursday night, Frank wrapped up his show, then walked into the casino with a few Apollo astronauts who had seen the show, and Frank went up to the Baccarat table and asked for credit. And that's when the casino manager said no. That lit a fire in Frank that was still smoldering by Sunday morning when Frank threw a tantrum, destroying the furnishings in his suite, threatening to break the pit boss's legs at the casino, and driving a baggage cart through a plate glass window. When the crowd stared at him in wild-eyed amazement, he answered their stares by saying, I built this casino from a sand pile, and before I'm through, that's what it'll be again. Then he went over to Caesars and signed. Then, early Monday morning, he walked back over to the sands, strode up to the bell desk, and demanded to see casino manager Carl Cohen. When he was told that Cohen was not available, Frank grabbed a house phone and told that operator the same but still got nowhere. Then he threatened to tear up the hole downstairs if Cohen or Jack and Tratter didn't respond soon. Getting no results, he turned to an armed security guard and swore at him that he would take his gun away from him and shove it up his ass if he didn't take him to the switchboard now. Finally, by 5.45 a.m., Cohen got dressed and went down to the restaurant for coffee, hoping to get in a coffee and a bite before he had to deal with a lunatic Sinatra but Sinatra found him in the restaurant. Conversation went something like this. 
Sinatra. Why are you cutting off my credit? Cohen. I don't own the hotel anymore. Sinatra. What are you so nervous about? Cohen. You just got me out of bed. Sinatra. Yeah, well, why are you so nervous? Cohen. I'm not going to listen to this bullshit. And then Cohen started to rise from the table. And that's when Sinatra grabbed the table with Cohen's breakfast and coffee on it and turned it over before Cohen could get up. A pot of hot coffee scalded Cohen's groin and abdomen. At that point, Cohen put all of his 250 pounds into a right fist that hit Frank's face front and center, splitting Frank's lips and knocking out two of his front teeth. Sinatra put his hand up to his mouth. He said, You broke my tooth! I'll kill you, you MFing son of a bitch! Always present, Frank's bad boy, Jilly Rizzo, who was right there behind Frank, reached into his jacket and started to pull a gun, but stopped when he heard the unmistakable sound of a hammer being drawn back on a revolver. There was now a Caesar's security guard overshadowing Rizzo, and he was telling Rizzo to put it away. That didn't stop Frank, as he picked up a chair and swung it at Cohen, but the chair ended up hitting the second guard who had come to Cohen's rescue and that guard ended up taking it on the head, requiring stitches. That seemed to be enough for Frank, who then ran through the doors, with Jilly Rizzo following close behind. A lot of people had seen and heard how Frank had acted that day, and word got around Vegas fast. Cohen became a hero, and Frank a bum, and his days as king of Vegas were quickly drawing near an end. His recording career, however, was going gangbusters, especially for a wannabe mob guy in his 50s. Sinatra started 1967 with a series of recording sessions with Antonio Carlos Jobim. He recorded one of his most famous collaborations with Jobim, the Grammy-nominated album Francis Albert Sinatra and Antonio Carlos Jobim, <coughs> which was one of the best-selling albums of the year behind Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Sinatra also released the album The World We Knew, which features a chart-topping duet of Something Stupid, with daughter Nancy. In December, Sinatra collaborated with Duke Ellington on the album Francis A. and Edward K. With Sinatra in mind, singer-songwriter Paul Anka wrote the song My Way, using the melody of the French Comme de Habitude, meaning as usual, composed by Claude Francois and Jacques Riveau. Sinatra recorded it just after Christmas 1968. My Way, Sinatra's best-known song on the reprise label, was not an instant success, charting at 27 in the U.S. and 5 in the U.K., but it remained in the U.K. charts for 122 weeks, including 75 non-consecutive weeks in the top 40, between April 1969 and September 1971, which was still a record in 2015. Paul Anka, in his book, Sinatra, His Malls, and Me, a brutally honest memoir by the man who wrote My Way and became an honorary member of the Rat Pack, wrote, Even before I hit my teens, my fantasy centered on hanging out with Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and Sammy Davis Jr. In my dreams, I was living in Las Vegas, and then, bang, I was actually there. I was a middle-class, 19-year-old of Lebanese extraction and less-than-spectacular looks who had an unexpected number one hit with my song, Diana. The year was 1959 when Vegas was just a few hotels surrounded by sand and sagebrush and controlled by the mob. But it truly was a teenager's fantasies come true. Hot chicks, champagne on ice, gold-plated pink Cadillacs, 
shark-skin suits. Ruling over this adult magic kingdom was the Rat Pack, little gods in black tie and patent leather shoes. They didn't talk like anyone else I knew, they didn't behave like other people, and they didn't play by the rules. The king of this playground was my idol, Frank Sinatra, who'd been a big star since the 40s. He was 25 years older than me, yet he and the rest of the Rat Pack adopted me, calling me kid and including me in their japes. To a geeky kid from Canada who'd been expected to take over his dad's restaurant, it was like going into the College of Cool. Every day I had to pinch myself. It's no exaggeration to say Vegas revolved around Frank. Movie stars, politicians, business moguls, and of course, women were magnetically drawn to him. After our shows, he'd lead Rat Pack drinking and gambling sessions until 4 or 5 a.m., which wrecked havoc on our voices. Then we'd go to the hotel's health club, where we wore robes Frank had given us, with our nicknames emblazoned on them. Sammy Davis Jr. was Smokey the Bear. Dean Martin was Dago. And of course, I was Kid. In the steam room, we'd sit around talking for hours, naked as the day we were born. Suddenly, a couple of giggling showgirls, also stark naked, would tiptoe in, or occasionally, Frank would have ladies of the night brought in. Then he'd disappear to a little massage room to enjoy their company. He wasn't the only one who did this, though I didn't. We all knew what the wild and horny senator John F. Kennedy was up to when he came to Vegas. Even the comedian Bob Hope had a massage every day and women stashed all over the place. Once, he was enraged because a French movie star had checked into the Sands Hotel and started bragging to everyone that he was great in bed. It reached Frank's ears that the actor had two showgirls at his villa and was getting abusive with them. This cheap, lousy French actor and two of our beautiful broads? He yelled, immediately dispatching some bellboys to the actor's villa. The showgirls, as it turned out, could look after themselves. When he went too far, they tied him to the bed. Frank ordered the bellboys to carry the bed out of the villa and throw it, complete with the tied-up Frenchman, into the shallow end of the pool. When Frank was angry, he was capable of far worse, particularly if he'd been drinking. He once had some wannabe mobsters beat up two comedians just because they'd made fun of him, and when Kitty Kelly wrote her biography of him, in which she dared to criticize his mother, he threatened to have her whacked. Fortunately, this was never carried through, though he had the contacts to do it. Sinatra was always hanging around with the crooked noses, as we called the mafia, and doing them favors. Jules Podell, the owner of the Copacabana Club, told me Frank acted as a bagman for the mafia a number of times, but they eventually stopped using him because he always got caught. Once he was stopped carrying a briefcase through customs containing $3 million in cash. I knew many in the mafia. They would come backstage and tell me stories. Hey, Polly, you know the guy that was just in here? I was told once. That was the guy who dissolved his victims in acid and served up their finger bones in soup for his guests. Or they'd smile and say, if you ever want someone taken care of, Polly, but I knew better than to take them up on that. You do it once, and you're in their pocket for life. But I had to work with the mob. There was no choice. In 1967, Frank Sinatra confided over dinner that he decided to retire. The Rat Pack was starting to splinter, which made him feel vulnerable, and he was being harassed by the FBI because of his mob connections. Kid, I'm fed up, he said. I'm going to do one more album and then I'm out of here. Then he lightened up and said, Hey, kid, you never wrote me that song you always promised me. 
Don't take too long. He often joshed with me about writing a song for him, but I'd never got around to it. A few months later, at home in New York, I couldn't sleep one night, so I sat at my piano and started playing a French song, Comme de Habitude, to which I'd bought the rights. There was a storm brewing, and as I played, I suddenly sensed myself becoming frank, tuning into his sense of foreboding. And that's how I got the first line. And now, the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. I thought of him leaving the stage, the lights going out, and started typing like a madman, writing it just the way he talked, ate it up, and spit it out. I'd never before written something so chauvinistic, narcissistic, in-your-face, and grandiose. Everything in that song was Sinatra. When I finished, it was 5 a.m. I knew Frank was in Las Vegas, but by then he'd be off stage and at the bar. I called, Frank, I've got something interesting. I'm going to bring it out. When I played the song for him, he said, That's kooky, kid. We're going in. Coming from Mr. Cool, that meant he was ecstatic. There was never any question of singing it myself. My way was done Sinatra's way, and that was unquestionably the right way. Although I do like the way Sid Vicious did it. In the end, I stopped going to his shows. It was just too depressing to see Frank forgetting words he'd sung a million times before. He started to lose his mental faculties and would get confused about where he was. Over lunch one day, he started obsessing over old regrets. One of his biggest, he said, was not playing the part that Marlon Brando made famous in the Mafia film, The Godfather. I don't know why they wouldn't give it to me, he moaned. I called everyone. I mean, I'm him. That part was me. Barbara, who must have heard this lament a thousand times, said soothingly, Yeah, I know, Frank. It should have gone to you, baby. I saw him again a few times, and on each occasion he'd be like a cracked record, talking about the Godfather role. But despite his failing strength, he hadn't given up on showbiz, and he still wanted to go back to the recording studio. Finally, I had the right song, called Leave It All to Me, and Frank agreed to record it. The studio was booked, the band was waiting, but he canceled the recording at the last minute. When I went round to see him, I could tell he no longer knew where he was, what he was doing, even who he was. He died not long afterwards, in May of 1998, aged 82. I heard many people say his life had been blighted by his final years. But I look at it differently. For all his faults, Frank Sinatra lived life more fully than anyone I've met before or since. There was no one like him, nor will there ever be again. And again, that's from Paul Anka in his book, Sinatra, His Malls, and Me. Paul Anka. The 60s were getting better all the time for Dean Martin. In 1965, Martin launched his weekly NBC comedy variety series, The Dean Martin Show, which ran for 264 episodes until 1974. He won a Golden Globe Award for Best Actor, Television Series Musical, or Comedy in 1966, and was nominated again the following three years. The show exploited his image as a carefree boozer. Martin capitalized on his laid-back persona of the half-drunk crooner, hitting on women with remarks that would get anyone else slapped and making snappy, if slurred, remarks about fellow celebrities during his roast. During an interview on the British TV documentary Wine, Women, and Song, aired in 1983, he stated, perhaps tongue-in-cheek, 
that he had had someone record them on cassette tape so that he could listen to them. His TV show was a success. The show's loose format featured quick-witted improvisation from Martin and his weekly guests. This prompted a battle between Martin and NBC censors, who insisted on more scrutiny of the content. The show was often in the top ten. Martin, appreciative of the show's producer, his friend Greg Garrison, made a handshake deal giving Garrison, a pioneer TV producer in the 1950s, 50% of the show. However, the validity of that ownership is the subject of a lawsuit brought by NBC Universal. Despite Martin's reputation as a drinker, perpetuated via his vanity license plate, Drunky, his alcohol use was quite disciplined. He was often the first to call it a night, and when not on tour or on film location, liked to go home and see his wife and children. He borrowed the lovable drunk shtick from Joe E. Lewis, but his convincing portrayals of heavy boozers in Some Came Running and Howard Hawks' Rio Bravo led to unsubstantiated claims of alcoholism. Martin starred in and co-produced four Matt Helm super-spy comedy adventures during this time, as well as a number of westerns. By the early 70s, the Dean Martin show was still earning solid ratings, and although he was no longer a top 40 hitmaker, his record albums continued to sell. He found a way to make his passion for golf profitable by offering a signature line of golf balls, and the Dean Martin Tucson Open was an event on golf's PGA Tour from 72 to 75. At his death, Martin was reportedly the largest single minority share owner of RCA stock. Now comfortable financially, Martin began reducing his schedule. Final 73-74 season of his variety show would be retooled into all celebrity roasts, requiring less involvement. After the show's cancellation, NBC continued to air the Dean Martin Celebrity Roast format in a series of TV specials through 1984. And those celebrity roasts, if you ever get a chance to see them, are great. Doesn't matter who they're doing. You get a whole panel of people there, and the laughs and good humor are intense. Martin and his panel of pals at these celebrity roasts made fun of the stars in this order. Ronald Reagan, Hugh Hefner, Ed McMahon, William Conrad, Kirk Douglas, Betty Davis, Barry Goldwater, Johnny Carson, Wilt Chamberlain, Hubert Humphrey, Carol O'Connor, Monty Hall, Jack Klugman and Tony Randall, Zaza Gabor, Leo DeRocher, Truman Capote, Don Rickles, Ralph Nader, Jack Benny, Red Fox, Bobby Riggs, George Washington, Dan Rowan and Dick Martin, Hank Aaron, Joe Namath, Bob Hope, Telly Savalas, Lucille Ball, Jackie Gleason, Sammy Davis Jr., Michael Landon, Evil Knievel, Valerie Harper, Muhammad Ali, Dean Martin himself, Dennis Weaver, Joe Garagiola, Danny Thomas, Angie Dickinson, Gabe Kaplan, Ted Knight, Peter Marshall, Dan Haggerty, Frank Sinatra, Jack Klugman, Jimmy Stewart, George Burns, Betty White, Suzanne Summers, Joan Collins, Kent McCord, Martin Milner, and Mr. T. To anyone with any knowledge of movies and culture in the 20th century, this was an A-list of very popular people. The Celebrity Roast CDs can be found at Amazon, and as I said before, they're great. For nearly a decade, Martin had recorded as many as four albums a year for reprise records. That stopped in November of 1974 when Martin recorded his final reprise album, Once in a While, which was released in 78. 
1975 film drama Mr. Rico marked Martin's final starring role, in which he played a criminal defense lawyer. He played a featured role in the 1981 comedy The Cannonball Run and its sequel, both starring Burt Reynolds. In 1972, he filed for divorce from his second wife, Jean. A week later, his business partnership with the Riviera Hotel in Las Vegas dissolved amid reports of the casino's refusal to agree to Martin's request to perform only once a night. He was taken by the MGM Grand Hotel and Casino, where he was the featured performer on the hotel's opening night, December 23, 1973, and also signed a three-picture deal with MGM Studios. Less than a month after his second marriage had dissolved, Martin was 55 when he married 26-year-old Catherine Hahn in April of 1973. They divorced November 10, 1976. Eventually, Martin reconciled with Jean, but they never remarried. He also made a public reconciliation with Lewis on the Jerry Lewis MDA Telethon in 1976. Sinatra shocked Lewis by bringing Martin out on the stage. As Martin and Lewis embraced, the audience cheered and the phones lit up, resulting in one of the telethon's most profitable years. Lewis reported the event was one of the three most memorable of his life. Lewis quipped, So, you working? Martin, plain drunk, replied that he was at the Megum, meaning the MGM Grand. Dean's daughter Gina was born in 1956. Gina's marriage to the Beach Boys' Carl Wilson made Dean Martin Carl Wilson's father-in-law. Carl was the youngest of the Wilson boys, and he was known and liked by a lot of people in the recording industry. His years spent with the Beach Boys is the stuff of music legend, but I'll bet you didn't know he sang backup on Chicago's Baby What a Big Surprise and Elton John's Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. Figure skater Dorothy Hamill and actress Olivia Hussey were Dean Martin's daughters-in-law during their marriages to Dean Paul Martin. And one of the most unusual things that came up during the research of this show. Going back to the crash of Dean Paul Martin's plane on March 21, 1987. His plane crashed in a snowstorm while flying with the California Air National Guard. The plane smashed into Mount San Gorgonio near Palm Springs. And I checked it. It's the seventh highest peak in the U.S. at 13,000 feet. This crash marked the second eerie connection between Dean and Frank because Frank's mother, Dolly, had died when the plane she was flying in crashed 10 years earlier into that same mountain at Palm Springs, Mount San Gorgonio. I checked, and only four crashes have been known to occur on that mountain, three airplane and one helicopter. Very strange that two of those crashes would claim the lives of family members connected to the Rat Pack. You think, what are the chances? Martin who responded best to a club audience, felt lost in the huge stadiums they were performing in at Sinatra's insistence, and he was not interested in drinking until dawn after the performances. His final Vegas shows were at Bally's Hotel in 1990. There he had his final reunion with Lewis on his 72nd birthday. Martin, who had been a heavy smoker, was diagnosed with lung cancer at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in September of 1993 and was told that he would require surgery to prolong his life, but he rejected it. He retired from public life in early 1995 and died of acute respiratory failure resulting from emphysema at his Beverly Hills home on Christmas Day, 1995, at the age of 78. 
the lights of the Las Vegas Strip were dimmed in his honor. Martin's body was interred at the Westwood Village Memorial Park Cemetery in Los Angeles, where his crypt features the epitaph, Everybody Loves Somebody Sometime, the title of his signature song. In 1964, Sammy Davis was starring in Golden Boy at night and shooting his own New York-based afternoon talk show during the day. When he could get a day off from the theater, he recorded songs in the studio, performed at charity events in Chicago, Miami, or Las Vegas, or appeared on television variety specials in Los Angeles. He had a number 11 hit with I've Gotta Be Me in 1969. He signed with Motown to update his sound and appeal to young people. His deal to have his own label with the company fell through. He had an unexpected number one hit with The Candyman with MGM Records in 1972. He did not particularly care for the song and was chagrined that he had become known for it, but Davis made the most of his opportunity and revitalized his career. Although he enjoyed no more top 40 hits, he did enjoy popularity with his 1976 performance of the theme song from the Beretta television series. Beretta's theme... Keep Your Eye on the Sparrow, which was released as a single. He appeared on the television shows The Rifleman, I Dream of Jeannie, All in the Family, during which he famously kisses Archie Bunker, Carol Connor, on the cheek, and Charlie's Angels with his wife, Altavis Davis. He appeared in Japanese commercials for Suntory Whiskey in the 1970s. On December 11, 1967, NBC broadcast a musical variety special featuring Nancy Sinatra, daughter of Frank Sinatra, titled Moving with Nancy. In addition to the Emmy Award-winning musical performances, the show is notable for Nancy Sinatra and Sammy Davis greeting each other with a kiss, one of the first black-white kisses in U.S. television. That was in 1967. Davis had a friendship with Elvis Presley in the late 1960s as they were both top-draw acts in Vegas at the same time. Davis was in many ways just as reclusive during his hotel gigs as Elvis was holding parties mainly in his penthouse suite, which Elvis occasionally attended. Davis sang a version of Presley's song, In the Ghetto, and made a cameo appearance in Presley's concert film, Elvis, That's the Way It Is. Davis was also an enthusiastic shooter and gun owner. He participated in fast draw competitions. Johnny Cash recalled that Davis was said to be capable of drawing and firing a Colt single-action army revolver in less than a quarter of a second. Davis was skilled at fast and fancy gun spinning and appeared on television variety shows showing off this skill. He also demonstrated gun spinning to Mark on the Rifleman in two ounces of tin. He appeared in Western films and as a guest star on several television westerns. In August of 1989, Davis began to develop symptoms, a tickle in his throat, an inability to taste food. Doctors found a cancerous tumor in Davis's throat. He had often smoked four packs of cigarettes a day as an adult. When told that surgery offered him the best chance of survival, Davis replied he'd rather keep his voice than have a part of his throat removed. He subsequently was treated with a combination of chemotherapy and radiation. His entire larynx, however, was ultimately removed during surgery. He was released from the hospital on March 13, 1990. Davis died a few weeks later at his home in Beverly Hills, California, on May 16, 1990, at the age of 64, of complications from throat cancer. It had been a year of chemo, of fighting it, but finally, down to 95 pounds, he just gave up. Davis was survived by his wife, Altaviz, his daughter and three sons, and his mother, 
On May 18, 1990, two days after Davis's death, the neon lights of the Las Vegas Strip were darkened for ten minutes as a tribute. Looking back on the real golden era of the Rat Pack, which most writers would put between 1957 and 1964, it was really what launched Las Vegas into a booming, thriving mecca for entertainment, with a no-holds-barred mentality that people couldn't get enough of. Frank, Dean, and Sammy had made it big in every way you could make it, on stage, in movies, on TV, on the radio and phonograph, and they had captured the world's attention, spawning hordes of imitators and millions of fans. Ask anyone today who their favorite was, especially when the choice comes down to Frank or Dean, who had the lion's share of the records. And I think most would answer, Dean, as the songs are still popping up in movies to a greater degree than Frank's. It's been said before, but I'll say it again. There never has been, and there never will be anything again. Like the Rat Pack. We hope you enjoyed the show. We invite you to join us at our new app, 1001 Stories Network, which is free and available at Apple Apps and Google Play Apps. The links are in the show notes, and the great thing about this new app is that it contains all the episodes for all three of our 1001 shows. This one, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and 1001 Stories for the Road. And a big shout-out thank you for all you recent subscribers to the show. All of you have made it possible to upgrade from the ATR2100 mic I've been using to a Rode NT1A condenser mic, made down under in Australia, by the way, and it's already making a difference. We're inviting you to become a subscriber and premium member. It's like knighthood in the podcast business. You become a proud supporter of 1001 Network for only $2.99 a month, and you're suddenly a patron of the arts. Your life starts to improve. You start to feel better about yourself, and you start caring about life and all those little people out there who are trying to make it a better place to live. With 1001, you suddenly have access to all those episodes, and life becomes a fantastic journey into the past, present, and future. We're asking you to take the big step now and support us by subscribing. And we've placed a link for you in the show notes. You'll be appreciated more than you know, and I'll make sure to send you updates and let you in on upcoming projects once you come across. And here's a little recommendation I wanted to send your way. My wife and I have been making some changes to our home for the spring. And we found a great podcast called Decorating Tips and Tricks. We listen to the show while we're working on a project. It's very upbeat and fun and informative. Three ladies host it, Anita, Yvonne, and Kelly. They interact very well and bring a lot of humor to the show. Plus, they inspire you to want to make changes. This week, they're discussing natural fiber rugs, jute, Cecil and seagrass, what they're made of, how they feel underfoot, how well they last, and which rooms they work best in. In between all this, they'll add a little banner, and one of them has a unique tried and tested solution for cleaning spots on natural fiber rugs, which you'll appreciate. I'm going to try to recommend shows to you that I enjoy as we go forward, because I think it's good for the industry, and we all benefit. This one again is called Decorating Tips and Tricks, and it's five stars all the way for me. We also enjoy reviews, and I wanted to share a few with you. Most come through iTunes, although some by Facebook and email at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. For 1001 Stories for the Road, 1001 Rules by Miss Ange. Rating 5 stars. We love all the 1001 shows, and John is a wonderful host. We listen all the time. We look forward to hearing the new episodes every week. And it's so cool being able to share them. 
Jimmy and I are history buffs and loyal fans. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Andrea. And this one, Everything You Do by J-Rock Child. Five stars. I love, love, love your stories from all your broadcasts. I was listening to Urban Legends, too, about the literature assignment while driving on the highway. I was laughing so hard, I thought people must think I'm crazy. I came home later that evening and played that section for my husband. We both laughed so hard. Thank you for the laughs, stories, and intrigue. Please keep it up. You make my travel enjoyable. Jamie. All right, where are we, where are we? And this one from Steve, five stars. This is a fantastic program. Look forward to every episode and spent many extra minutes in my car to finish an episode. Thank you, sir, for such a wonderful program. This is for 1001 Heroes. Awesome podcast, five stars, by William Browning. Well narrated and intensely interesting. Great podcast, by Jag66, five stars. Not too sure how I stumbled upon this gem of a podcast, but I'm so glad I did. I've been listening for quite a while now, and I love all the informative and fascinating topics. But my favorite shows are the World War II stories, hearing about the courage and heroism of the brave men who fought and sacrificed so much for their country. Gives me the goosebumps. Thank you, my friend, for this wonderful podcast. And from Patrick McMick, five stars. Thank you for the great stories. From Miss Ange, we can't get enough. We love all the 1001 podcasts. John Hagedorn is a joy to listen to. All the episodes are informative and fun. Meanwhile, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.